This is Report to Wyoming. In this episode, I get to talk to Tom Ray. He's from Casper, and he's the editor and founder of the wyominghistory.org site with the Wyoming State Historical Society. I was so delighted to have him on because I love history, and I stumbled upon one of his articles called Booze, Cops, and Bootleggers, which looks at Casper during the Prohibition. And we actually get into it in the podcast, so I won't say more about that story right now. He writes a lot. I'm a big fan of the way he does his research, and he paints a picture of what the past really looked like. Some of my favorite articles he's done are about Kit Carson and Buffalo Bill, but he's also uncovered a lot of characters I've never heard of, like Matthew Campfield, an African-American Union Army vet who worked as a barber, and he was elected coroner of Natrona County in the early 1890s. So, history buffs, this one is for you. It's the Wyoming Historical Society, which is a membership organization. It's been around since the early 1950s with uh, chapters in most counties in Wyoming. It's a nonprofit 501c3. It used to be part of state government up until the 1990s, and since then it's been all private. And uh, so we have a, a board and a staff director, and um, and this, what I work on, is called yohistory.org, which is a project of the Historical Society. So it's under the umbrella of the history. It's one of the many things the Historical Society does. Yeah, that's yohistory.org. And for the listeners, I found this website not too long ago, and I'm just stunned by the breadth of information you have. Um, I've never heard a lot of these stories, and so I imagine it's been pretty cool and fun uncovering them. Yeah, it has been. A lot of fun. Right. And going back to the trip, just briefly, would you say they're one of your top sources? I'd say the way I think about doing history, a lot of that comes out of what I learned as a journalist. No, they're not. Our, they're not a sort. They, they, you know, their journalism. They're every day. They're now, and and we're interested in the past. So, sure, but yeah. they've been around so long that sometimes I'll notice pictures or clippings. Oh yeah, I see what you mean. Yeah, from yes. archives right. of and, this kid. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there are there are a lot of newspapers, uh, including the Star Tribune and many others that we use as sources for story and old photos. And in fact, the um, the Casper College Western History Center, which has an archive, which means they keep stuff that is available to the public, historical stuff. They have uh, they have a lot of the content of the Star Tribune from the time I was working there, archived up there, both on microfilm that you can read in the newspaper as it was, or they have all the old um, subject files we used to have in our newsroom, which are Xerox stories of, uh, of articles, um, you know, in files by subject or by reporter or by, you know, important person in that, yeah. So that's a hugely valuable thing they have up there, stored in a very old-fashioned way. I don't think that stuff is scanned yet. It might be. I'm not sure. I hope they have a lot of fire extinguishers. Yeah, right, right. This is a hazard. Right, right. All these papers. It's got to be such a huge undertaking to get things uploaded electronically. Mm-hmm. And they are doing a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, they just did the mountain mountaineering archives. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there are so many pictures. I was, again, overwhelmed by like, wow. Yeah. There's still so much stuff to even write about. Material probably is endless for you. Yeah, yeah. No, we don't run out of topics. That's for sure. Yeah. Oh, yes. that's very cool. And the, the other nice thing is that with, with the Internet now, you can you can browse and search online early newspapers. So like frontier newspapers, newspapers up to about the mid-1920s are all available at a Wyoming newspaper project website. And this is a project of the State Library and, and the University of Wyoming, I think. And so you can, you can find news stories just by doing a search you know, from uh, early days. For example, we're about to publish an article about a murder that happened in Gillette in 1910, I think. Uh, 
interesting story about two cowboys who loved the same woman and one of them shot the other one. And, uh, <laughs> and he went to prison and, uh, and uh, he and two other guys broke out of prison and um, fled and were chased by a posse who finally caught up with them and killed them. But the, then there was, a, there was a townsperson killed in the jailbreak. And uh, our assistant editor was editing this story, which is written by this guy who works at the Rockpile Museum in Gillette. Great, very good, very clear story. But she had a, she thought, well, I wonder if I could find out a little more about this jailbreak. And so she went to that newspaper online source, and she found that there were, especially in Rollins, there were a ton of uh, other news stories about this event, and that a lot of people in Rollins were really mad at the governor at the time. And so the governor was taking flack because of this. And it wasn't just three guys. It was 27 guys who broke out of prison and were fleeing in all directions. Whoa. So, 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 it, so because of, but we never would have known that. Uh, had we not been able to easily do a search on, on this topic, and, and if you find a lot more, things can get richer that way very quickly. So it's really fun. What about oral histories? We do have some oral histories, not a whole lot, like only fifty or seventy-five or so. We hope we always hope to do more, and yeah, those are fun too. And we often cooperate. We always cooperate with the Casper College Western History Center on those because they have a good little recording place up there and they will also get them transcribed, which is so, so they're not just oral, they're, uh, mm-hmm. they're also transcribed. And so that means they're searchable for researchers looking from far away. They can, they can search them. You know, so oh, that's and paste quotes into their thesis. <laughs> yeah, Someone like yeah. me did that many years ago. No, I would yeah. try to always, yeah. always attribute credit. Sure. But how did you fall in love, or when did you realize, I guess, that you wanted to have a career in history? Well, uh, I left the Star Tribune because I wanted to do some bigger projects than I ever got to do there, working in daily journalism. And so uh, I wrote, I guess, three books. One was about a dinosaur was discovered in uh, Wyoming in 1899, went on to be the world's first world-famous dinosaur, oh. Diplodocus, like a like a sort of a skinny brontosaurus type. Diplodocus. Yeah, uh, okay. like type dinosaur that was, the name of that book is Bone Wars. Uh, and then I did a book on um, the history really of the Sweetwater Valley in Wyoming based around uh, the fact that, um, which has a lot of Oregon Trail history in it and a lot of Mormon history in it. And a lot of, uh, oh, there's just so much happened right along that corridor, which you can drive now. And if you go, if you drive from Casper to Lander by way of Independence Rock and Devil's Gate and Muddy Gap, and then on out up the Sweetwater Valley, you're, you're following right along the Oregon Trail the whole way. And, and that's it's beautiful and empty out there still. But it really was a book about how the stories of history can get told by the people that own and control the land that they happened on, whether they're told correctly or not. So the name of the book is... Devil's Gate, owning the land, owning the story. That was I know published. I've by, heard of this book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yep. And um, those are for sale in town. And then, uh, um, and then the third one was uh, the Wold family here, oil and gas family in Casper, uh, hired me to write a history of their ranch, um, which is up in the Southern Bighorns, in the Red Rock country, west of KC, Wyoming. Beautiful. I think it's the most beautiful place in Wyoming, especially right this time of year when there's when all the grass is bright green and those enormous cliffs that go on for forty miles are nice. bright red. And it's uh, it's a yeah. So the it used to be called the Bar C Ranch. They renamed it the Hole in the Wall Ranch. So it's up near Hole in the Wall. So there's lots of outlaw stories. But that's a story of how of how one ranch existed through you know 150 well not quite years of different owners. 
Now, the one that I was really drawn to, again, it was, is it, now I'm going to get it wrong for sure, cops, no, booze, cops, and no. What is yeah, it there's an article on Wild History called Booze Cops and Bootleggers. Booze Cops and Bootleggers. Which is about Casper during Prohibition and, and especially about a, a case, uh, a federal case brought against, if I remember this, it's been a while now, the, um, the mayor, the chief of police, yeah. right? And yeah. the sheriff, and the county sheriff, Natrona County Sheriff, uh, and all the about big dogs. 25 other people, including a number of bootleggers and cafe owners who were selling liquor illegally uh, were all charged in one large case uh, by the federal prosecutor who later went on to be a pretty well-known federal judge. Um, And it was right at the end of Prohibition. Everybody was really tired of Prohibition. Everybody knew it was about to end. So this is like in the early 1930s. But uh, the case made it pretty clear that all these people, the public officials and the bootleggers were all in business together and had been for quite some time. Um, The um, but the thinking behind the prosecution, we it's easy to see in hindsight. They should have charged maybe three of those guys, maybe those three, mm. or maybe those three and a couple of bootleggers, but not 27 people or something like that, all in one indictment. And so, uh, so the jury wasn't ready to convict all that many people. And so, the, so the case, uh, so they were, they went free. Oh wow! Yeah. Okay. And then alcohol. Yeah. Does it become legal around 1933 in Wyoming? 33, I think. Yeah, I think the, I think the Constitution amendment was passed in 33, and in most places you could sales could resume in 1934. I think that's right. Interesting. And then I've heard yeah. a rumor that women weren't allowed to be within X feet from the bar, and that that, that law is still technically around, but obviously I don't know not about followed. That. I don't know. About Super that. weird. Okay. I know that it was. I know that it was rare for women to be in saloons at all for a long time and some saloons had separate ladies rooms and stuff oh, room, sure. rooms for women yeah when does casper is it about that time that or is it i guess already happening uh during the 30s that casper is a pretty thriving little city casper becoming a small and early version of what it is still i think um with the um influx of oil money beginning really in the 19 teens especially when the salt creek oil field up at midwest was beginning to boom and uh and so the oil had to be transported originally by wagons and later by pipelines down here to the railroad where it could be shipped out so in, in the early 1920s the salt creek oil field was the largest producing oil field in the world and uh so that there was a lot of oil business people here and and oil prospecting going on all over the state um the price of oil fell with the depression and uh, and then it came back again in the 50s, and we've been on that uh, roller coaster ever since. Yeah. Well put. Yeah. yeah. And I know the Bishop family, for us and Casper, that's something that always comes to mind, uh-huh. how pivotal they were in sort of creating the society of Casper, if you huh. will. Huh. That's interesting. I hadn't thought of it that way. That could be so. They were a sheep owning family, weren't they? The, Hils- the I bishops? Know. I think okay. so. And th- some of those big mm-hmm. houses up on Center Street, like 1,100, 1,200 block of Center Street and, and, and on Walcott, a lot of those houses were sheep fortunes of the early 1900s, before World War I really is when those people were making a whole lot of money. And that's part of the Bar C story too that I was writing was, you know, we think about cowboys, but really there was a, people were making a lot of money in wool um, in Wyoming in those years. 
You've written so many different things, so many different topics. Uh-huh. This is going to be probably hard to pick. But if you mm-hmm. had to, what's your favorite, like, what's your favorite topic if you huh. really zoomed in on Oh, something? I should have anticipated that one. Well, one thing that keeps drawing me back to it is trying to understand what's happened to Native people, tribal people in Wyoming over time and how at some point it struck me that I was a kid who grew up just always liking to read history and it struck me that, huh, after about 1890, after the battle the Little Bighorn in 1876, and then the Battle of Wounded Knee on the Great Plains, which was which was sort of the final confrontation between the Army and the Lakota Sioux Indians. The Native people just kind of uh, sort of disappear from the history books, you know, like, oh, well, that's not part of the story anymore. And in fact, that's unfortunate to think of it that way, because the amazing thing is, it, and around that time, also in the whole culture, there was the idea of Indians as the vanishing race. There's a really famous sculpture of a Indian man on a horse, and the horse's neck is bent way down and the head's down to the ground, and the man is also kind of leaning forward, and he's got a spear, and the spear point is down and touching the ground, and the, the whole aura of it is depressing, and isn't it sad, and we all know these poor people aren't going to be around much longer. And that's the way everybody thought about it. White people, I think, always thought about it, and and in fact, the amazing part of the story is that's not what happened at all. You know, there's lots of thriving people around and there's tribes all over the West uh, still. Um, and people are making a living in all kinds of ways. And so stories that remind us that, you know, these people are around and they're part of us and they were always part of us. They were especially uh, earlier times. There was a lot more mixing both of families, mixed race families and, and economies really before time of Wyoming Territory, really, before before the railroad was complete. And after after that, the in, the whole idea of Indian, of reservations became a lot um, like, oh, you know, if, if you had a, if you had a mother who was, uh, let's say, Oglala Sioux, and you had a father who had been in the fur trade business for a long time, and they had a family, well, for a long time, that was just part of who all the people were around here. But then after after the 1870s or so, well, you have, are you an Indian or are you not an Indian? Because if you're an Indian, you belong on the reservation. And so that division kind of happened. It's part of that other story of, you know, when the military stuff is over, then, then we don't think about it anymore. And that's just a mistake. So I, I like stories that work against that. Have stuff. you guys done a pretty good job of uncovering, well, to say good, sorry, that's loaded, but have you been able to uncover a lot of these histories? Yeah. Yeah. We have a writer who writes for us named James Nottage, who's just last year or two been starting to write some really interesting stuff for us. And he's very interested in what was going on here in the 1860s. And he knows a whole lot about it. He's a guy who grew up in Wyoming and got a master's degree and then moved away. And he's worked at some pretty prestigious museums, history museums and art museums around the country. He's now in Indiana and he's retired and has time to write some of these stories. So for example, he wrote an article for us, and this was one of the stories that's in my mind just now, about an Indian agent. So that means he's the agent of the U.S. government to the tribes, an Indian agent to the Upper Platte River, the tribes of the Upper Platte, which in, and he was a West Point graduate who taught briefly at West Point and then left and became an educator and worked in some manufactories, moved down to South Carolina. And then in the mid-1850s, when he was probably approaching 50 years old himself, he took a job with the U.S. government, Department of the Interior, as Indian agent to the tribes of the Upper Platte. He was first stationed in Fort Laramie, and then he moved the agency up here, up to Glenrock, where Glenrock is now. 
Deer Creek. And he, uh, the Indian agent's job, one of his main jobs, was to oversee the distribution once a year of goods and food to the tribes who, as part of their treaty, got what are called annuities, which meant annual payments of stuff and food uh, as part of their agreement to, you know, leave the emigrant trails alone and and uh, and stay kind of away from trouble and from each other from different tribes. From so that was that was a signed agreement, and so the government to keep up its obligation establishes these Indian agencies. This is more detail than you want to hear, right? No, I'm interested. And so, Absolutely. And so, and so, uh, so he, um, although he was an educated soldier himself at one time, he didn't get along very well with the army very well, and so the army was the main power out here. And so there was there was Fort Laramie is where soldiers were uh, stationed, and um, other at some smaller places. But that time in the 1850s, it was pretty much only Fort Laramie. And so to get really away really from the army, uh, he moved the agency up to Glenrock to Deer Creek, which flows into the North Platte at Glenrock. And um, and after a while, and there was already a trading post there. Uh, at Deer Creek, on so this was on the Oregon California Trail on the main East West Emigrant Road. Uh, there was a trading post there, and um, he established the agency there. And before very long, even though he had a white family back east, he had an Indian family here too. He had a Oglala wife. So he was two timing. He was, okay. and he had. Uh, he eventually had. Uh, I think four children with her. And he resigned his position in 1860 when a new administration came into the White House, actually when Abraham Lincoln was elected, uh, he resigned. But he stayed around here for a few more years. And so after we published this article about uh, Thomas Twiss is his name, I got a call out of the blue one day from uh, the Pine Ridge Reservation in South Dakota and the person calling me was Dustin Twiss, who's like the great-great-grandson, or maybe three greats, of Thomas Twiss. And he still lives up there in Pine Ridge. He's Oglala. And uh, he said, oh, yeah, I have a, I had a, he had a friend or a cousin who was in Casper who'd, who'd seen this article and told him about it. And he called me up. And so I thought, wow, <laughs> this is pretty cool. And so we started talking. And the outcome is, oh, I'll tell you the outcome in a minute. Mr. Nottage did a second article for us, which we just published last month, which is about an army expedition, an exploring expedition of the U.S. Corps of Topographical Engineers that was led by a man named Captain in the Army named William Reynolds. And Jim Bridger was their guide. And and they uh, explored the what are now large parts of eastern Montana, northeastern Wyoming, central Wyoming. They went on over the Continental Divide into Jackson Hole and then up through they came down from the Yellowstone in eastern Montana to here, and they, and they spent the winter at Deer Creek, uh, right near where Twiss had his agency. And they had with them a photographer. And it's really rare to see very many photographs of the West before the Civil War. This is mm. just a couple of years before the Civil This was just a year before the Civil War broke out, the spring they were here. But there are two really interesting photos. One, one is a picture of four Arapaho men, and one of them is, uh, one of them we had heard of before, the other three I didn't know, a guy named, he was called Friday. He was, uh, he was the one Arapaho that knew a lot of English because when he was 10 years old, he was found on a Friday by the uh, mountain man, Tom Fitzpatrick, who's one of the most famous of the mountain men. Fitzpatrick. He Friday. Yeah. Oh my God. And, but he liked this boy, and, and he took him to St. Louis, or to Missouri, 
And, and the kid spent a few years in school there learning English. And, and then he came back to the West to be with his people. And that would have been, well, in this picture taken in 1860, he looks like a middle-aged man. So um, he lived another 15 years after that or 20. Uh, and there's still lots of Fridays on the, on the Arapaho Reservation here in Wyoming. And then, but the other picture is a group of, is a larger group of Arapaho men, mostly. And the photography is, it's sometimes it's a little hard to make out, especially those lenses they had were much sharper in the middle of the picture than around towards the edges. But in the lower left-hand corner of the photo, which is a group photo of, of Indian men, mostly, there's a white man. And he's wearing a top hat, and he's got a beard. And the picture we have of Twist is he's, he's looks, he looks like, uh, he looks, it's like a, it's like a even more dramatic looking Buffalo Bill with long white hair down to his shoulders and a long beard and a, a fringed hunting shirt, you know. So he went native in his dress while he was out here. And, but this guy is wearing a top hat and maybe a black suit. It's hard to tell. And sitting, and he's sitting and in his lap are two Indian children. So this, it's probably, seems to us, Thomas Twist with some members of his family. And so, so we've been talking about this with Dustin Twist for a year or so now. And he's going to come here to the Trail Center on July 15th, a Saturday at 1 p.m. Dustin is with his dad, Louis Twist, who's in his mid-80s. Dustin's probably in his late 40s. And uh, Dustin said his dad has this box of stuff. And, and I'm really <laughs> about, about oh. their great-great-grandfather, the, the major, they call him. And so he'll be able to tell these stories, he and his dad, not only about the major, Major Thomas Twist, but about um, the rest of the story that we never hear about. So what's been going on on the res for the last 125 years, you know, mm. through this family. And there's a lot of them. And uh, so I'm so this will be a public presentation. I'll probably be sort of interviewing them a little bit, but I'm counting on them to do all the talking. <laughs> and that'll be at 1 p.m. at the National Historic Trail Center up on the hill uh, on Saturday, July 15th. Good to know. Yeah. That is so exciting. Yeah, it's really cool. Do you have a lot of um, these stories emerge from stories? Because I, I, this goes, you know, you'll understand as a journalist, sometimes we'll publish something and then you get comments on Facebook or yeah. people calling yeah. with more to it. Yeah. And, and sometimes they're good sources. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> they are. Yeah, yeah. We does do. Uh, a lot? Yeah, it does happen. Well, yeah, it happens. And it's really, really really fun when it does happen. You learn about, yeah, I can tell you a couple of things that happened. One is, so we did some histories of the early coal business in Wyoming and to do, and some of those stories were written by a woman named Nancy Anderson who lived in many years, for many years near Hannah, Wyoming. And she's a stalwart of the Hannah Museum, which is a museum that's largely about coal mining. This is along the Southern Corridor. Hannah is uh, west of Medicine Bow, between Medicine Bow and Rollins down there. And that was the original railroad route across southern Wyoming. And the reason the railroad followed the route it did across Wyoming, it was like a line connecting the dots, and the dots were coal mines because they needed coal mines to run the railroad. So that's what Hannah was for a long time, was a coal mining town. And um, I got a query from an Italian man uh, asking me if there were any way to find out any more information about what had happened to his great uncle who was killed in a coal mine in Wyoming in 1915. Mm. And I thought, this is a question for Nancy. So I put him in touch with Nancy Anderson down there near Hannah, and she knew how to read the, um, I guess they must have had some dates. I, yeah, I think maybe he knew the date of the death. And she found every year the 
government of Wyoming issues a report on the coal business. And she found that report for that year of the accidents. And, and here was this man who had been killed in a mine in Kemmerer by a fall of coal, which means the roof just fell on him uh, and killed him. He was, he was the only one killed in this disaster. There were others that were far worse uh, in numbers of people killed. But, um, and, and then we could use that newspaper search engine and f- and look it up and we found that there was coverage in the camera papers of a big funeral that was put on for him by his union brothers and his lodge brothers and uh and this italian man had died and buried there and this guy from italy uh is a former senator of italy and uh and so he learned these specifics from nancy and then he wrote up an, a little booklet for his family about this relative with these great photos. I mean, the guy, he was a young man. He came to the States in 1910 or so. He worked in mines in western Pennsylvania, in iron mines in the upper peninsula of Michigan, and eventually ended up digging coal in Wyoming. And there's just wonderful photos of this guy with his friends and holding wine bottles and, and you know, family members and his mother and his sisters and and so he did this little booklet and then and then he translated it into English and sent it to us and so we have this story about this Italian guy who was killed here in 1915 in the coal mine on wyohistory.org so that's wow. that's the kind of thing that that just makes it so fun and it tells the stories about actual people and what happened in their lives yeah nonfiction is um it's so wonderful because if you can find the story, it tells itself. Right. You know? Yeah. I also heard a quote, I think it's Mark Twain, but it's that history doesn't repeat itself. It rhymes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm wondering how much you think about that kind of thing in the in your daily life. Mm-hmm. Do you see things, everything that you know that happened in the past, do you ever see things that rhyme? Well, if you think about Wyoming's economy now, it certainly, it certainly rhymes. I mean, if, you know, I think of it. If you, if you start with when uh, European people, European Americans, white people, first started coming here with the fur trade. And they were here to get furs and sell them and make a lot of money or turn them over to traders who sold them and made a lot of money. And, uh, and so it was extractive, you know. I mean, it was like use, it, was, it was using up a natural resource is what happened. You know, they tell us that the fashion changed and people wanted silk instead of beaver hats, which is sort of true. But what also happened was the Rocky Mountains ran out of beaver because mm-hmm. the mountain men had killed them all. And so that's uh, – it, it was very near extinction. And it really changed the landscape in the mountains because all those nice, wet, boggy places from beaver dams dried up and weren't there anymore. And, uh, and at the same time, um, yeah, so the, you know, the beavers took a long time to come back. Then we switched from beaver to buffalo, and we killed all the buffalo. Then we switched from buffalo to cattle, and the cattle ate almost all the grass before people really realized what was going on. The overgrazing was terrible. There was a huge crash in the in the um, in the grazing in the ranching business at the end of the 1880s. This there was one horrible year of blizzards, which kind of killed it off. And then 45, uh, n- 87, oh. 88. Okay, 1887. I saw the article on. Like when the recent blizzard started happening here. And oh there yeah, was a that, that was 1949. Yeah, yeah. yeah no, this was long before okay, that. Okay, okay. Okay, this was a this was a time, and so uh, that really changed the economics and politics of the cattle business. And then you have uh, oil and coal and gas, which has always been subject to forces outside of the state. Like any commodity, these minerals 
uh, the price of those minerals has nothing to do with what's going on in Wyoming. It has to do with demand and supply going on around the world. And it's been, um, and so that's what's going on now. And because these extractive industries, beaver, buffalo, cattle, and, and, all, and all our now minerals can be extreme, and sheep too, can, all, can at sometimes be extremely lucrative if you don't overdo it, if you don't overdo it. Because it makes us all so rich when the market is high, we just can't figure out a way to do something else. And so still in Wyoming, we're very much married to oil and coal and gas. And I think, I think it's going to be, I think it's going to get really, really hard now in the next 25 or 30 years because we still haven't learned to listen to the rhyme, you know, about, so what happens, what happens when the resource runs out? Coal's not going to run out, but the market for coal is back up on the short term, but it's been declining really steadily for the last 15 years. Well, then they'll find something else to extract. Yeah, maybe so. Any forecasts? <laughs> no, no, I don't know. But tourism <laughs> is a relatively clean business. One thing that really introduces, that really intrigues tourists, I think, is history. And so we try, we could do a lot more, but we have, you know, we do try to promote history itineraries. You can find them on our website. We have brochures about it around the state. You're holding a couple right there as ways to travel the state for history-minded people. And there's a lot of stuff coming up this summer, too. Mm-hmm. A couple of big things. I know that Wyoming will be on TV series. Oh, great. Ford Bronco is doing a partnership. Uh-huh. And these, I think, five guys are going to be ripping around the state. I've heard some advertising on just national platforms. Um, so they're starting to market to uh-huh. people outside of uh-huh. Wyoming. Uh-huh. And I think the Wyoming Tourism Office, which is part of state government, in the last few years is doing is doing a much better job of they are on purpose mm-hmm. in a way that they didn't used to be, paying much more attention to what tourists might like in other parts of Wyoming besides Teton and Yellowstone Park. Right. And history, to your point, that is really big. Well, anytime you want to do a podcast and talk about stories, we'd be happy to oh, accommodate you. I would love to just listen to, selfishly, hear more stories. Yeah. And kind of, I'm, as a writer, too, interested in your whole process and how you get the idea, how, time frames. Do you work on something for six months or is there a bit of a deadline or do you have deadlines? All that kind of stuff. We have deadlines for our writers. Yeah, sort of. <laughs> I had a, a I had an editor... <laughs> In the newsroom, it was always complaining that they weren't deadlines. They were severely injured lines, you know. Uh-huh. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, you know, we, we do have to put up new articles on a regular basis. So now, thanks this year to some substantial support from the Wyoming Cultural Trust Fund, we're sort of back where we were some time ago, which is publishing two new articles a month of substance as well as blog posts every Thursday and a once-a-month e-newsletter that goes out letting people know what's new on the site. So, And we have me and two assistant editors, uh, Becky Hine and Kylie McCormick. Who are great. So among the three of us, we we get that work done. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for stopping by the station. I You're really welcome. hope to talk to you again. Okay, I'd like that. You bet. Awesome. Anytime. Okay. Thanks, Tom. Thank you. This has been Report to Wyoming, presented in the public interest by Town Square Media.